Okay, also I uh, want to say hello to those who are tuning in on the radio. Thank you for listening to KFHL. The only way that that could be better is if you were here in person. So uh, if you find the time on another Saturday morning, we invite you down to 2600 Kenwood Road, right here in Bakersfield. We would love to have you here. God bless you. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope Sunday you will come and join us in person. The message today is called Advancing. Several years ago, I was in an extended training program with people from various parts of all over the world, and one of my classmates was a young woman from Nigeria in Africa. She was part of a missionary family. She was born into that family. She had been in that kind of work for her whole life. And during our long training, and it was, you know, months long, she received some bad news from back home. A man had recently begun attending their local Adventist church and spending the Sabbath with the saints there. That wasn't the bad news. The bad news is that one day this man stopped coming. He was a member of a Sunday-keeping congregation nearby, and he was new to the Adventist community. They, they didn't know how to contact him outside of him showing up on Sabbath. But one day they did in fact discover why he no longer showed up. And it was because he had received much, much, much condemnation from the members of his other church. That condemnation resulted in his no longer worshiping with the Adventists. Now that's a pretty familiar story, right? We've encountered that before. An enthusiastic new student succumbs to family pressures or church pressures and walks away from the Adventist message. We, as preachers of the message, have worked out almost a science about how to share our message in such a way as to minimize the chances of that happening. But this was not such a familiar story. This man did not choose family over faith. There are no training programs or evangelism committees that can devise a method of overcoming the problem that he faced because his church members did not pressure him out of Sabbath keeping. No, no, no. They tied him down on the ground until he came to his senses and quit all that demonic Adventist stuff. They left him there tied on the ground day and night until he died. And my friend, half a world away, shared this heartbreaking tale with us as we did our best to comfort her with Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think a lot about persecution. I did even as a young person. I'd always been really terrified and suffered from lots of anxiety and among my greatest fears was a sense of helplessness, having no choice but to be a victim or of something or someone. And I spent long hours with the dread associated with being in a war or being hunted or nuclear fallout or persecution or torture or, you know, global warming or whatever, you know, inevitable death. And so naturally, when the Lord 
introduced me to the scriptures, it, it kind of was a natural instinct of mine to focus on the time of trouble and the persecutions in Daniel and Revelation, not because I'm overtly morbid or terribly enjoyed dwelling on such subjects, but rather it was because for the very first time in my life, I had a sense of reassurance to go along with that anxiety, right? Maybe trouble was coming and I couldn't help it, but Jesus promised me that he would be with me through it all. And that was a totally different perspective than I had ever had before. He would protect me. He would strengthen me. He would raise me from the dead if necessary. And so in my imagination, in the years that have passed since, I have wondered often about how worship and fellowship would change under active persecution. And I'm in a church history class right now, so I'm kind of learning all about the persecutions of the early church. And without dwelling long on this, the short answer is that every conclusion that I have ever drawn paints the reality of worship and fellowship as entirely dissimilar to our current reality now. Nothing would be the same under persecution. Our gatherings certainly would not be the same. Would we be able to park a hundred cars in one place if Babylon's army is hunting on a Sabbath morning? Our priorities would not be the same. No more trying to raise $100,000 for a year of very public medical and theological evangelism. Our money would be no good anyway, according to Revelation. Our interactions would not be the same. You may have noticed that we don't all see eye to eye here in this church, right? How in some cases that has led to absentee members, high tensions, distrust, and even the occasional outburst. There's no room for any of that when the priority is praying for each other's very survival and helping each other literally stay alive from one day to the next. Do I care if you're more liberal or more conservative than me if I haven't eaten in three days and you as a believer in Christ have food? You see, everything changes. Everything will be 100% different. No more trumpeting on Facebook about how right you are or how wrong somebody else is. No more trumpeting on Facebook, even passages of the Bible, which I'm sure will be discouraged and perhaps even illegal in those days. In fact, there'd be no Facebook at all, if we're being honest, because you're going to be branded as a terrorist and a fugitive from the law, and you'll have no working capital and no resources. Are you awake yet, church? Have I caught your attention yet? You know this is coming. You've read it in the Bible. Christ promised it two millennia ago and prophesied it in the Old Testament even before that. I have met some in the church who want to pretend that this is not coming. It has been said to me, no joke, I'm not making this up, I don't want Jesus to come because I don't want to go through persecution. That's been said to me. Imagine that. I hope that sounds ridiculous to you. And yet it's a logical thing to say, right? The Bible is not unclear. There will be a time of trouble preceding the second coming of Christ. 
And so, if you want to avoid the time of trouble, then you must not want Christ to come. It's a very logical conclusion to draw. Do we want Christ to come, church? Yeah? I'm glad to hear that reaction, but honestly, I heard it real loud from this corner and not from this corner or the two corners in the back. Do we want Christ to come, church? Amen. Yes, we do. I thought so. And so what do we do then? If not wishing away the second coming, then how do we wrestle with the reality of eventual persecution? Now, I believe that the answer is in a well-known text from the book of Ephesians. Though, if you bear with me, you may find that I might go in a different direction with it than you think. So I'm turning to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. This passage can be rather cliché can be. The imagery here is so very vivid that it conjures in our minds a complex image of a prayerful warrior wielding the word of God as a weapon against the assaults of the dark kingdom. And if you're not careful, you can get so lost in the metaphor that you might miss the point of what Paul is saying. See, the armor of God here, and here's a little artist's rendition that I pulled off the internet, The armor of God here is said to defend us against the warring of the spiritual hosts of wickedness that is all around us. Certainly during the time of trouble, those spirits are going to be on a rampage. Armed with our helmet and breastplate and shield, we will be able to withstand this demonic onslaught. That's kind of where we usually go with this passage. But did you notice... In those nine verses, the word stand appears three times. What is so important about standing? How is that related to this metaphor of the gospel as a warrior? Or the coming time of trouble, for that matter. Certainly shoes are not really a weapon with which to fend off an attack like everything else. I'd like you to think about hand-to-hand combat and what that must have been like for the Romans, which is the context under which that was written. In that situation, if you fall down, you're dead. 
Standing was essential for survival in battle situations. And in the Roman warrior getup, right, described and pictured here, the shoes would be more like cleats, soccer cleats. And I chose this picture of all the many on the internet because it kind of gets, if you look at the picture of the shoes here, it kind of gets that. You see the little ridges in there like cleats. They were designed to dig into the ground, to ensure traction, and to guard against falling down. Now, does that make sense? The shield does not do any good if the first blow to the shield knocks you backwards off your feet. Because remember, if you fall down, you're dead. You don't get up again if you fall down in that battle situation. And yet that is not the whole of it. The command here is to stand, not just to remain standing. Do you see the difference between those two things? Let me illustrate it for you, okay? Why don't you all stand up right now? I'm not kidding. Stand up. If you're able, of course. <laughs> all right, now praise the Lord. Now that we're all up, stand, saints. Come on, you heard me. Stand. Why aren't you doing anything? Because you're already standing, right? Yeah, a command to stand only actually works if you're not already standing, right? You may be seated. Thank you for participating in my illustration. <laughs> a warrior in that situation would have had a circumstance when he must not be standing and yet need to then stand as quickly as possible. And that is when the fiery darts are coming at him. Do you see how this context is bringing all these imagery pieces together? Consider, if an enemy's archery team is firing flaming arrows at me, I have essentially one chance of surviving that attack. I crouch down, I brace myself, I put my shield over my head, and I hope that the arrows hit the shield instead of my body. Okay, with me so far? But that in and of itself is a vulnerable position. I may be safe from the arrows coming from above, but a footman on the ground can do me in quite easily. I am a, when I'm down like this, I am essentially defenseless from the front, from the side, from the back. The only way I've got my shield is up above me against those arrows. So, I have to stand in order to be safe again. The warrior cleats, then, are especially useful here. You need good traction. You've got enough people and enough bloodshed, it's not going to be solid ground, it's going to be muddy ground. It's all chewed up by the action and wetened by the blood and whatnot. So you need good traction, again, to push off the ground your entire body weight, the weight of all of your armor and all of your gear, and potentially the arrows now stuck in your shield or other enemy attacks from your immediate presence or the dead bodies that have fallen on you while you're down. And you have to do all that quickly. You may even see in other artist renditions 
that the cleats are bound up all the way almost up to their knees because you need to have the good traction to be able to do that successfully. If you slip, you're going to be vulnerable for longer. If you slip so much you fall down, you're dead. If you fall, you're dead. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Did I just describe to you going down like this and getting up again to fight? Is that in an offensive situation or a defensive situation? Well, it is defensive insofar as he's shielding himself from the arrows. I'll grant you that. But if I am in a tower or behind city walls where I'm in a defensive position defending my territory, is my best option to hide under a shield and then get up immediately for hand-to-hand -hand combat? No. My best option is probably to hide behind the wall, right? And so, the situation I've described is what you do not when you're safe in a city defending it, but when you're in the field advancing in an offensive position. The armor of God is often described as a defensive weapon to shield us from the enemy's attacks. And yet the mention of the warrior's shoes, the presence of those flaming arrows, the command to stand, they all indicate that it's an offensive tactic. The armor of God is used for offense, for advancing against the enemy, not just defending against him. And so advancing then is how we get through the time of trouble. Any time of trouble. That's what the early church did. You know, one of them would go to the flames and the rest of them would preach the word of God. That's how they survived that. Paul himself, the author of this, was familiar with times of trouble. He had led the first persecution against the church. He died in another great persecution against the church under Emperor Nero. The early church well understood times of trouble. And their command was to stand, to advance. And that is exactly what they did. They advanced so powerfully, so mightily, so successfully that their detractors declared that the church had turned the whole world upside down in one generation, in Acts 17, 6. Does that not make sense? Here's another familiar text that we often look at backwards. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So we often read this and understand that hell will not overcome the church. The church will stand as a fortress against that. But once again, I've got the same question for you. Are gates weapons of defense or offense? Defense, right? You don't go attacking someone with a gate. You're fending off an attack with a gate. Hell needs a gate because the church is advancing against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the advancing church. Why do so many of us succumb to the devil so often? 
It's because God is advancing against the kingdom of hell. So if we want to be with God, that's where we need to be also, advancing against the kingdom of hell. If we are not doing that, then we are not fully in the presence of God. And the devil scores all sorts of victories when we are not in the presence of God. Amen? Amen. So we should be advancing, church, advancing toward God. Now, there is an individual aspect to that, of course. We can make godly choices about the, you know, Adventist hot topics. We can make godly choices about our diet and our appearance, our recreation, our relationships. Every godly choice that we make, every selfish choice that we avoid, brings us more in harmony with the workings of the Holy Spirit, better able to hear and discern the voice of God, and better able to represent Him to a fallen world. That's the truth. But that is not nearly the only thing that I'm talking about this morning. It's not even the main thing. I am talking about bringing the gospel to the people who have not yet heard it. I am talking about actively flooding this world of darkness with the light of the world. I'm talking about evangelism. How best to war against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places? Advance against their kingdom by sharing the love of Christ, the word of God, and the soon return of Jesus. What is the best military scenario in which to obey the command to stand? It's advancing against the kingdom of hell by telling someone about the Lord Jesus Christ. How will we walk with God through the time of trouble? It is by telling the world to fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And that Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And of course, through all of that, we are to exercise the patience of the saints, as it says in the very next verse. That's how we're going to do it. That's how we will have the armor of God and advancing against the seemingly victorious kingdom of darkness in those days. We will preach the word. And you know what, friends? If we want the patience of the saints in the face of the unparalleled evil of those days, then we better be patient with one another right now. Amen? Amen? Have mercy, friends. Let's remember that we're all on the same team here. We all want eternity with the Lord. At least I hope you want that. I don't know why you'd be here if you don't want that. So we have an opportunity to advance against the kingdom of hell coming up right here on the 17th of March. We have an evangelist from Amazing Facts who will be here for three weeks, four weekends. 
as a corporate body with the evangelist's help and with the grace of God, we hope to put on the whole armor of God and advance the kingdom of God. That's our plan. But within that corporate body, there is a great need for individuals to advance as well. And that means we need the talents the Lord has given you. There is no shortage of work that needs to be done. Even just showing up and being friendly to the visitors is a huge evangelistic help. Surely you can do that, right? In many ways, what I just said is just as important as the message because if they don't feel welcome here, chances are the message will not be enough to make them stay. They need to feel welcome. Maybe you don't want to speak in front of 200 people, but surely you can speak to one person and be friendly, right? So in short, friends, God has provided us a chance to advance with him individually and as a body of Christ. If we embrace that, then the next month or so can be a life-changing time for many people, including us. All who are humble enough to recognize their need for more of Christ can emerge from this experience changed and touched by the Holy Spirit of God. And I pray that we will use this opportunity because advancing against hell will take us through the troublesome times to come as well. The formula doesn't change. We will find safety in the Lord as he moves us to shine light amid near-universal darkness. So in closing, let's look again at our scripture passage. Let's note the contextual commands surrounding another very familiar passage. Usually when we use this passage, we do exactly what Brother Doug did. We talk about the lack of doctrine and the need to study and all those things. That's true. But look at the context. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. The time of trouble will be the ultimate time when the world will not endure sound doctrine and will turn away from the truth and will follow after fables to their own destruction. And Paul's instruction to them in that scenario is in verse 1 to preach the word. And in verse 5, specifically, to do the work of an evangelist. That's how you overcome all of that darkness. And so I am appealing to you this morning, friends. Let us be evangelists in any way that we can. It is the best way to experience God. You see him do things that he does not do in other contexts. It is the best way to heal this church. It is the best way to defeat the kingdom of hell. It is the best way to prepare for and endure the coming time of trouble. 
And what's the best way to become a better evangelist? It's the same way that you get better at anything. You practice. You do it. Go talk about Jesus. Ask for help if you need some help. No problem. And then learn from the mistakes you make. Do it better the next time. Make sure there is a next time, of course. And then just repeat until Jesus comes. That's how you do it. It's not a mystery. Doing that will not prevent persecution. In fact, if we do it well enough, it might actually invite persecution. <laughs> we have no guarantee better than that unfortunate man in Nigeria. But we can be assured that the same God who prompted Peter to submit to crucifixion upside down, who warned him ahead of time and strengthened him through the experience, will be with us. That same God will be with us, no matter what trial or test we face, even unto death, if necessary. And in the meantime, I hope that we can create an environment here and a worship experience here that will be more in line with and more preparatory for the experiences that we're going to, to have under persecution. I hope that we'll have that proper perspective and remember what is important and what is not. Are we ready to take a step in faith this morning, beloved? Are we ready to tell God once and for all that we are ready for him to use us to advance his kingdom? And I hope this is not too real for you here, but I'm not just talking to the 8 to 10% of us who show up and do everything. I'm talking to the 100% of us who have a responsibility from God to show up and do something. Are we ready to tell God that we are serious, that we want to put on that armor of God and stand and do the work of an evangelist like he's commanded us to do? Amen, amen, amen. If that is your desire today, I invite you one more time to Stand! There you go. Amen. Yes. As we sing our closing song together, and then we will pray. And while they're getting ready, please do not stand just because everybody around you is standing. Don't do that. Stand up because you truly want to advance God's kingdom by His grace. Stand if you want to do the work of an evangelist. Let us sing, and then we'll pray together. Let's sing How Beauteous Are Their Feet. We'll sing the first and last verse. 372 in your hymnals. How beauteous are their feet Who stand on Zion's Salvation on their tongues and of peace prevail. The watchmen join their voice and to the north Jerusalem breaks forth inside and desert. Yeah. 
Let us pray, friends. Our loving Father in heaven, I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters here this morning, knowing that you have called us to live in this solemn and important moment of history.